The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. So let's give a warm Alberta welcome to Joe Boot, please. I'll just say a few words of prayer here just to... Uh... Yeah. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this uh, moment in time. You've gathered us together this way. Thank you for the, uh, for the words that we'll hear tonight and how you've anointed uh, Joe to speak them and, and, and speak your truth. Lord, uh, you've called us to be your salt and your light. And uh, we find ourselves in a, in a confusing time, a culture that's, that's so darkened and so, so distant from you, it seems. Uh, Lord, we need to be equipped to know how to do this, how to, how to, how to be your, your hands, your feet. Uh, our ears are open, and I, I just pray that uh, the, the words of Job's mouth and the meditations of our heart might be pleasing to you. Uh, Lord Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Good evening, everyone. If it's possible to put the lights up slightly, guys, on the um, people so I can see their lovely faces. That's better. Wonderful. Well, it's good to be uh, back in Edmonton when it's actually um, above minus 15, which is great. This is wonderful weather we're having. It's even uh, warmer than Toronto here, which is remarkable for this time of the year. Were any of you here at Quest for Life uh, last year? If you were, raise your hand. Quite a few of you, and lots of you who were not. So that's wonderful. Well, if this is your first uh, Quest for Life conference, um, a warm welcome to you. I'm returning uh, this year, which is a tremendous privilege to be back uh, and to be a part of the program. Thank you, Ted, for your uh, warm welcome and for the effort that's gone into putting this conference on. Quest for Life this year is looking at the general theme in the world, but not of it, and tonight really sets up uh, the position for us, the kingdoms of our culture understanding the fight for the Christian faith, the kingdoms of our culture. And what we're going to be doing in the uh, plenary sessions and the breakouts are going to build on this is really consider the two different ways, essentially two different ways, the Christian way and the non-Christian way of approaching the great questions that are facing uh, our society and our culture today. And the thesis actually is simple. Sometimes we overcomplicate these questions, uh, even as Christians, that there is the kingdom of God Uh, There's the city of God, and then there's the kingdom of darkness, the city of man, the kingdom of man. And that those two are uh, in a conflict, that there is actually, we are in the midst of a a fight for the gospel, for the Christian faith. And it's an irreconcilable conflict with the religious assumptions and many of the uh, socio-political goals that are religious in origin, 
of the world in which we live. And that means that being a Christian increasingly in our culture is an uncomfortable thing to be. There was a time when being a, a Christian in Canada was a, an, or in Britain or in the United States was a very, very comfortable uh, position to hold because 75% or 80% of your neighbors were in church with you on a Sunday morning. And they recognized the, the God of Scripture. And they shared ends and goals and an understanding of family and life and the future uh, that gave a sense of social cohesion. And that has been breaking down for, well, at least 100 years now, but especially in the last 50. I wasn't alive 50 years ago. You can obviously tell that, but I'm just surmising from my studies. So the kingdoms of our culture, one is rooted in the God of Scripture, the other is not. And I want to start uh, this evening by setting up our whole theme for the weekend to paint a, pic- a picture for you, both theologically and philosophically, actually looking at uh, some core issues in history to show you uh, this divergence, that this is real. And the two major uh, positions or opinions that today are in conflict. They coexist, but they are in conflict uh, in uh, the culture. And I'm going to start in a rather odd place. I'm going to read to you from Genesis chapter 10 and verses 8 through 12. And when I finish reading it, you're going to wonder what the relevance is, but it will become clear. Genesis chapter 10, and I'm just reading verses 8 through 12 for a moment. Cush fathered Nimrod, who was the first powerful man on earth. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord or before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom started with Babylon, Arek, Akkad, and Kalner in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria, built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Irkala, and Resin between Nineveh and the great city, Kala. All places familiar to you, I know that you are uh, familiar with, and so forth. Now, it is not uncommon for most of us to hear in our culture today that there are many paths to God, that there are various roads to enlightenment, there are many ways to spiritual fulfillment. Christianity may be one amongst many of those, but it certainly is only one. And in fact, the study of millennial evangelicals in America, in the United States, I should say, found that one in three Christians in the millennial generation, that would be those who were born, I think, somewhere between, somewhere after 1985, somewhere around there, I believe, Think one in three who profess to be evangelical Christians do not believe Jesus is the only way to God. Now, obviously, for the Christian church, that's a problem because that was the central claim of Jesus. I'm the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if in the younger generation of professing Christians in the United States, and I would imagine that the same is true in Canada... Only a third of them um, actually believe or actually 
one in three do not believe Jesus. A third don't believe Jesus is the only way to God. There is a difficulty there. There's a problem. There are some movements within the church that preach a religionless, creedless Christianity. It says you don't need tradition. You don't really need the infallibility of Scripture. Uh, You need symbols and we need esoteric experiences, but we don't need this idea of orthodox Christianity. That's passé. And many will include increasingly prayers to God as mother and so on and so forth. And we actually find that the, the, the state, the Western state today, is increasingly keen to support this kind of freedom of worship, people to worship any old being that they like, but they're not keen to support freedom of religion. That is the expression, the open expression of Christian faith in the public space. So you can go and worship any old deity you like, but don't talk about, certainly don't talk about Jesus Christ and his relevance in public life. That's an act of intellectual pornography. You can't do that. So there's a welcome of diversity, there's a welcome of multiculturalism, there's a welcome of toleration of all religions into this social fabric. In other words, there are many ways, everyone tells us, up the mountain to God. All the paths up the mountain lead to God. The first obvious problem with this idea, though, is where would you need to be located for you to know that all the paths on a mountain led to the top? It's not a trick question. Most people say the top of the mountain, but that's not actually quite true either. You wouldn't be able to see all the paths up the mountain from the top of the mountain. You would need the sort of helicopter 3,000-foot view over the mountain in order to know that all the paths going up the mountain led to the top. So when the pluralist, when the religious relativist, and that's what most of our culture preaches today from Oprah to uh, um, the... uh, um, emergent type leaders in the church today, that well, there's many different spiritual journeys and ways that we're making our way up the mountain. It sounds humble, but it is actually the height of arrogance. Because what it is saying is that without special revelation from God himself, I know that all the various religious ideologies and paths are all going to the same place. Because I have God's view. I'm 3,000 foot above the mountain. And all these poor pilgrims wandering up via the route of Christianity on this side. And these are the poor pilgrims making their way up via Buddhism on the other. They just don't realize they're all going to the same place. And our culture loves to sponsor that idea. Put it another way... I don't know whether uh, you have heard this illustration before, but imagine we, were all, uh, we had a big, great elephant here on the stage in front of us, and we were blindfolded, or a group of us were blindfolded, and we surrounded the elephant. And one of us was feeling the tail, feels like a sort of pig's tail, and others of us were feeling the trunk, and others of us were feeling the tusks, and others of us a leg, and so on. And we were all describing what we were feeling. And our descriptions of what we were feeling would be very different because we're all feeling a very different part of the elephant. But ah, says the religious pluralist, the syncretist, that is when he brings all the religions together. We're all feeling the same elephant. 
And so all the religions and all the ideologies are like these blindfolded people. They're all feeling the same thing. They don't realize it. But what condition would you need to be in to know that all of these people were actually feeling the same thing? Well, you'd need to be the only person without a blindfold on. And so once again, the claim of the religious pluralist is the syncretist, the modern spiritual guru, is actually an arrogant, conceited one. That everyone else here is sort of blinded in some way, but I can see that we're all feeling the same thing. It presupposes an almost divine perspective on the truth. And so the essential claim of man's kingdom, the kingdom of the world, in its efforts to promote religious syncretism in our day, is that really the human mind, human consciousness, has replaced God, God's revelation. There's an inherent shift from the authority of God and special revelation to the authority of man. One cultural theologian put it this way, for humanism, that is paganism, man's religious consciousness and man's psychology is the real source of religious knowledge and revelation. The true word comes out of man, and therefore man's experience needs to be developed. Religion ceases to be, thus saith the Lord, the word of God, but becomes, thus say I, the word according to man. You see, if it's not God who speaks an infallible word of truth, then the word of truth comes out of merely the person, human consciousness. And so what you need to do is develop the person's, anybody's religious experience so that they discover in their own way, their own religious consciousness, what the divine actually is. And this is what has infected the church. So it's not a surprise that when these polls ask evangelical millennials in the United States, is Jesus the only way to God? Two-thirds of them, a full third of them are confused. They're not sure. They don't think so. Because maybe they're feeling the tail, and that's Jesus, but somebody else is legitimately feeling another part of religious truth. Human beings, though, have been made in God's image. And in terms of God's purpose, according to the Christian worldview... And even when they rebel against God in this way, in terms of religious revolution, they cannot help but represent God's purpose in a deformed fashion. And so what humanity seeks to do is to create a paradise, that is a unified religious kingdom, and to increase their knowledge and their rule over the created world without the living God. Why such an emphasis? I I wrote a lengthy piece recently on President Obama's visit to the uh, uh, Baltimore Islamic Society and his speech at a mosque there a few weeks ago. And his subsequent comments at the National Prayer Breakfast in America. And what was he saying at these venues? He was saying, well, we're all worshipping the same God. 
We all go to our various temples or whatever. But it's all, you know, it's all, we're just recognizing the God within all of us. See, that's the political religious philosophy. Why? This effort is put forward, you see, because human beings are religious creatures to find a unity, a sort of religious unity that is a prelude to a socio-political kingdom apart from the word of God. There's an overall purpose to it. True religion in the Bible, though, is not man-centered, it's God-centered. And everywhere in Scripture, idolatry is contrasted with worship of the living God. The psalmist in uh, Psalm uh, 111, I think, I've not got my notes here, but I think it's there, speaks about idolatry, idols that are carved with human hands, Mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but don't smell, hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. In the ancient world, you see, the, the, the goal of religious worship, the belief in the gods was there, but the belief in various deities and we'll come on to what those were in just a moment. But the basic idea that even though people saw themselves to some degree as slaves to the gods, they thought that by their religious rituals, by their incantations, their occult practices, their prayers or whatever, that they could somehow manipulate their circumstances, manipulate the gods, bend them to their will. But in Scripture, the all-personal, all-relational God of the Bible speaks an infallible word with a binding authority. That's what the Bible is. That's what Jesus says it is. Whereas religious syncretism says the mind, idea, or experience of the person reveals the divine within. And so what results from those two different ideas about God and about revelation is two different views of Life in the earth, two different kingdoms, two different perspectives about society. One sees itself as the kingdom and reign of God, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, whereas the other is a kingdom of man, which has this kind of lifeless, meaningless blankness that the psalmist talks about, where, well, The mystic, of course, goes inward. Think about this for a moment. Another uh, religious scholar puts it this way. In his religious quest, the humanist refuses to look beyond himself for his God. The more he intensifies his quest, the more he becomes like the idols described by the psalmist, speechless, mindless, and senseless. Not surprisingly, the heart of mysticism is the same speechless, mindless, senseless experience. This is what people are looking for on the yoga mat. The mystic calls for the exclusion of the external world, of doctrine, of revelation, and of outer experience for a total concentration on inward blankness. The Hindu mystic declares, thou art that, i.e. the mystic is himself one with the ultimate power and is ultimate power. In other words, if you are not 
seeking to enter into a relationship with a God, a living God, who is distinct from you, who is wholly personal, but only with a divine essence that exists within and within everything else, what you need is self-realization, not revelation from God. To realize that you are divine. You're a piece of the divinity. If human beings speak the word from their own consciousness, there is a problem, though. In the kingdom of God, Scripture says that what God speaks, because he only speaks the truth, he has the power to fulfill. So God spoke and the world was. How does this other faith, this other kingdom, have the power to fulfill its word? Well, you hear them talk today, the interfaith syncretistic advocates that are everywhere. They believe that this other view of religion, this man's kingdom, that they, will, they can overcome war. They can overcome religious prejudice. They can overcome racial prejudice. They can create a unified, egalitarian, equalized world order where there are no divisions or distinctions. They can create a paradise, a utopia in the earth. A new world brotherhood. And so we hear many younger Christians in the church today saying that, well, Gandhi and the Dalai Lama and Buddha have all kinds of things to teach us that we need to be learning from. Even though they, those people held to ex- views of God and of reality that are totally contrary to what Scripture teaches, to what Christ taught, there is this belief that somehow, well, they maybe have the key to social life, religious life as well. There is then an interfaith syncretistic urge in our culture, and that is the kingdom of man, to bring about a kind of unity of the human race, a unity of the, of the social order. It's there in our desire for uh, our, all the international bodies and treaties and cultural organizations and world health organizations and world banks and world courts and everything else, to bring it all together and bring all the religions together. As though really it's all part of the same thing. Maybe it's only me who's noticed this, but I don't think so. Well, where did this begin? Where did this idea that human beings, from their own religious consciousness, you see, it's important for you to understand, especially if you're not sure about Christianity, that. There is no equivalent to the revelation of Scripture. Now, there have been copycats of the Bible, like the Quran and like the um, Jehovah's Witnesses' revisions and the Book of Mormon. There have been copycats. But if you look at the history of religion, what you find is that there is no revelation from God in these other religious perspectives, and that's for the simple reason they don't believe in God. Not a personal, infinite, personal, transcendent God who could speak and reveal himself. They don't believe in that. There may be gurus who tell you how to live wisely, as in Confucianism. There might be philosophers who say that the world is an illusion. But there is no revelation from God. 
So how did this error that the human consciousness could be its own source of revelation? Well, it begins with rebellion, with human autonomy, with the idea that man could be a law unto himself, independent of God and his word. A rejection, a a fundamental rejection of God's value structure of the true, the good, and the beautiful. To redefine good and evil in terms of man's will and desire. Now, if you're a Christian and if you have any familiarity with the Bible, you will know that that takes place in the book of Genesis. And we call it theologically the fall, where where the temptation to our first parents was this, you will be as God's. Has God really said? No, you will be as God's, knowing for yourselves. The force there of the text is determining for yourselves good and evil. In other words, right from wrong, truth from falsehood, you can define it by your own consciousness. You don't need God to tell you what's what. Maybe he's got more experience than you. But maybe you can offer a competing claim about the nature of reality. Maybe God didn't make them male and female. Maybe there's a spectrum. Gender fluidity. Of course, Plato begins with an original androgen, not male and female. The pagans began with an original androgyny, some kind of undifferentiated being. Don't think for a moment that the ideas of our culture today that are pumped at you in the schools have anything original about them at all. They don't. They are ancient pagan concepts that, as we have abandoned Christianity, are being reintroduced. Maybe we can define things for ourselves. Maybe I can define myself. Maybe I'm not a creature. Maybe I'm a God who can define myself. You see, this rebellion, though, this rebellion against God, nonetheless takes place within the framework of God's pattern, God's order and structure for creation. And so, because we were made for community, the family, first of all, and then a community, the kingdom of God, the other kingdom or community is simply a copy. It's one that is pursued without God. If you abandon community under God, you don't abandon the need for community. You still need community, but you want it without God. And that requires syncretism to bring everybody back together as the would-be gods into a new organized community. And to understand that rebellion, that's why I started in Genesis chapter 10, and we're going to read just a bit from um, Genesis 11 in a moment. To understand this original first syncretistic building project, There was this man called Nimrod. You read about him there in the Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10. Nimrod. His name actually in the Hebrew quite literally means to rebel. Rebellion. To rebel. This was the first great king in the history of humanity. That's what scripture tells us. He was the first notorious man in the history of the world. The first, the the foundation of priest kingship in the ancient world. And he wants an alternative society to God's society. 
And there is a development of this at a place called Babel in, in uh, Genesis chapter 11, reading from verse 1 here. At one time, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary as people migrated from the east. They found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let us make oven bricks. They used brick for stone, asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky or the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. The name of it was Babel. So if you look in chapter uh, 10, you see that this man Nimrod is one of the builders of Babel and then uh, the founder of Babel and then many of the other cities of the ancient world, several of them in this area, were founded by this man. And here we have, it's very easy to read over passages like this and think, what does that mean? I've got no idea what that means. What is that? What relevance does that have for me? Let's turn to a good bit. But this is very significant. God never wastes any words, ever. And when he mentions the name of one individual in particular, you should take note that something significant is being said. This was an attempt to build a religiously united society. An order, a society in rebellion against God. Not that society is a rebellion against God, but this was a religiously motivated society that wanted... Uh, a divine human order centered around man as a god. This tower was not uh, a skyscraper. The idea was not that they built it really high so that they might get up and wave at God. This was a ziggurat, which we find later on also, not just there in, in, in Babylonia, but in Egypt and in many of in the ancient uh, Mayan civilizations in South America. And the idea was at the top, It was kind of like a holy place, and this was the connecting point. The priests of the highest order could somehow commune with the divine. There they represented the divine to man. And the steps were representative of man's ascension to being a god. This area of Shinar was later called Mesopotamia and later called Babylonia. This new religious system involved the self-deification of human beings. And the Bible tells us that it's, the name of it is Babel, which literally means confusion, whereas in the ancient Akkadian language, it means gate of God, Babylu. So there were two interpretations, the two kingdoms, there were two interpretations of the meaning of this society. One was rebellion, essentially. Confusion, I should say, a place of confusion because there God confused the languages of the people. And the other is it was the gate of God. It was the connecting point between the divine and the human, man's self-consciousness. That, of course, was the promise given to our first parents that, that, that if they rebelled against God, there would be a, a new self-consciousness, self-consciousness that they would have. 
a new self-realization. It didn't emerge. So here we have this dream. Don't forget the society has one language at this point. So you have a global language. You have the people moving together, trying to accomplish something great together in defiance of God. God had said, spread out, fill the earth. Nimrod and co. said, no, let's build a utopian order here. Let's halt history. Let us rebel against God. The text actually says, let us make a name for ourselves means to fix, define, and establish our own authority by naming everything else. Let's avoid being scattered. Division is a horrible thing, they thought to themselves. We can't be scattered and divided. No, no, we have to come together in this micro-global unity. For pagan man, you see, ultimate power cannot be divided power. So there was this effort to compel human unity in the name of this new faith in man's religious self-consciousness. This was the gate of God. This was the place of total government where God's looked down and he says, well, nothing will be beyond them if they continue with this. Man wants total power and control. That's the emphasis there. He wants the goal of this society is control and power. Well, God undermined the project with confusion. And a peculiar mark of all non-Christian thought is, in fact, confusion. The biblical view of unity, it's not that the Bible doesn't like unity, but the biblical view of unity is based in God's relationship with man, covenantal union with God and then with each other. An inward unity. Abraham typified this faith, of course, but this was, a, this was a different project. This was a different kind of project. This wasn't the family of Abraham. This was a different kind of development of a, what became a Babylonian world monarchy. And then we see in the ancient world repeated from this point on again and again and again an attempt for the ancient civilizations to build an eternal Human divine order, whether it's Egypt, where Pharaoh is a god, a god to the people, whether it's Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Romans, you see it repeated again and again until the advent of Christianity. Now, this period after the flood, which is here in uh, Chapters 10 and 11, I don't want to bore you with this, but this is, I think this is important because there's probably never been a time when we as human beings in the West have been less connected with the past. We live in terms of fragments of information. We are ignorant of history. We're ignorant of the Bible. And when we do learn history in the schools these days, it's put to political purpose. It's given a political twist to accomplish a particular aim. So stories of oppression that we need to overthrow. We're disconnected from what Scripture says. So if Scripture says it, it's important for us to understand it. It's saying something important to us to understand. The leading British Egyptologist, David Rahl, noted that 
these ancients saw in themselves, in a sense, the rebirth of humankind. And he says that this man, Nimrod, was later deified as the Mesopotamian hunter god, Ninurta. Nimrod becomes Ninurta, who was the priest king of Uruk. Son of Cush, this empire builder. And according to other uh, ancient sources, he adopted the goddess Inanna into was the patron deity, actually, of his religious complex. Iana means house of heaven. This was the mountain goddess of ancient Sumeria, and she represented fertility. Now, where might the idea of a fertility goddess come from? Many of us have never asked these most basic questions. Why would have our ancestors, before Christianity, and they're doing it again now, and in fact, it still goes on all over the world, actually, goddess worship and fertility gods and all of that, why would such a being be worshipped? Well, Raal suggests that the ancient earth mother goddess is recognizable as the deified Eve, whose name means the mother of all living. The original home of this goddess, according to these ancient sources, within the mountains of the Sumerian kingdom, a paradise land called Edin, E-D-I-N, the Bible's Eden. The Babylonians later called this goddess Ishtar. The Canaanites called her Astarte. She's called Ashtaroth in the Old Testament. She's the Isis of the Greeks. She's the Lady of Heaven, worshipped sometimes under the zodiac symbol of Virgo. So, by the way, if you want to, if you think this is all ancient history, well, people still read their horoscopes. People want to know what star sign they're born under. These, you go right back to the origins of the zodiac right here in the ancient world. Nimrod was the founder then of these mighty cities in the ancient world, and he became a semi-divine hero who becomes synonymous with Marduk of the Babylonians, Osiris of the Egyptians, Usher of the Assyrians. He's the state deity. He's the founder of pagan priest kingship. And he's adopted into the Western pantheon as Ninus by the Phoenicians, as Adonis by the Greeks, as Dionysus by the Romans, as Bacchus. He's identified with the constellation Orion, which we would still recognize. So Raal, David Raal, this Egyptologist, he says, he argues that all goddess worship stems from the deification of Eve, who is later made the consort, the consort of Marduk, who is Nimrod. All these male gods, when you read in the Old Testament, you read about Baal, and you read about Molech and Melech. These are state deities, state deities, representing essentially the worship of the state, which take their root from an original deified human being, Nimrod. I don't want to digress with this because my time will disappear on me, but one of the most ancient religions out of ancient Persia is called Zoroastrianism. Zoroaster. And it literally means seed, the seed of the woman. Zoroaster, the seed of the woman. Now, if you know your Bible, you will know that 
There is a promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. That there's going to be one born of woman who is going to undo the results of the curse and establish the kingdom of God. Zoroaster actually can be traced back through a number of ancient historians argue to Nimrod. This notorious man of the ancient world deified and and worshipped under various names since antiquity. Why is that important? Man's gods historically have been himself, his ancestors. The mother of all living, Nimrod, and all those like him. He was the original archetype, if you will. All paganism actually traces itself to a common origin in these two things. Ancient pantheistic myths of creation out of some primeval chaos where gods and men evolve out of some ultimate original continuum of, continuum of being. Or, and the idea of, in a new world, man in a sense creating for himself out of that watery chaos a new world and building a kingdom there. Now, this, this historic rebellion against God with Nimrod, which I've argued just briefly there, gives us the origin of the gods and goddesses of paganism. That my ancestors around Britain drinking the blood of the dead and so forth were worshipping. And by the way, <clears throat> the seed of the woman, he shall crush the serpent's head and you shall bruise his heel. When you actually look at... Uh, again, many of these ancient gods and heroes, they are depicted with their feet on the head of a serpent. What is the weakness of Achilles? His heel. This rebellion against God led to this, this occult religion led to new ideas as well about being, the basis of truth. So you have this historical idea man has for himself. In his rebellion, he's going to define truth for himself. He's going to build his own kingdom. And of course, this had an impact upon how he thought about origins, how he thought about his original creation. And there is a remarkable, just as there's a similarity between these gods of these ancient peoples, there's a similarity in the creation accounts of the ancient world outside of Scripture. For those of you who were here last year, I talked about, and I'll break it down for you this simply, there really are only two worldviews. And every single religious worldview resolves into one of these. Oneism and twoism. Do some of you remember that? I talked about it last year. Oneism and twoism. Oneism says the universe, whatever it is, is all there is. There is only one thing, and we're all just an aspect of it in various combinations, returning back to the nothingness. And then there's twoism, which says, no, reality isn't just one thing. Actually, there are two things. There's the uncreated being of God, the uncreated being of God, and then there's all that he has made outside of himself. Every worldview resolves into one of those two things. Now, the 
uh, scientist and researcher Henry Morris pointed out about the remark, he said, the remarkable similarities of the cosmogonies of many different nations of antiquity, that cosmogony just means origin, story of origin, as well as their respective pantheons of gods and goddesses, is obviously more than coincidence. The nations and their religious systems must have a common origin. What are these ancient cosmologies begin with? They begin with a universe that already exists in some kind of formless, watery, chaotic, empty state. The forces of nature, which are usually personified as gods, act upon them. And creation happens in some way or another. The Greeks actually acknowledged that their religious philosophies were derived from the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Sumerians. The Greek and Roman pantheons of gods have, an, have a one-to-one correspondence. Babylon's gods, Egypt's gods, Greece's gods, Rome's gods, they're the same gods, they carry different names. Somehow, you see, this rebel man Nimrod is placed then at the foundation of these cosmologies of, of creation out of some kind of watery chaos and the foundation of, these, of the gods, a rebel society. The Enuma Elish myth, perhaps the oldest of the pagan myths that we have, was adapted by the Greek philosophers for their own systems by Hesiod and Thales of Miletus and Anaximander and others. And they trace themselves back to this one world religious leader, Nimrod, who gave us this first oneist myth that becomes the foundation of the religions of Rome, of Greece, of India. This is what the Bible calls, actually, in Revelation 17, the mystery of Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Out of this original source emerges the, emerges the entire complex of false religion in the earth. And so there is a deterioration from monotheistic belief into pantheism and then into is all is one, all is God, polytheism, many gods, and in crude animism. Now, fast forward to 2,000 years ago when Paul in the book of Acts is in Athens. Acts chapter 17. And he is trying to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And where does he find himself? He says, in a city filled with idols. Because there... That center of the Greco-Roman world of learning, of philosophy, every single god you can conceive of was worshipped. And he pointed out that there is an altar here in your temple to an unknown god, and he used that unknown god as a starting point to proclaim the living god of Scripture. But the Stoics, he said that he was speaking to Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, and what the Stoics believed was that all of reality was pervaded by an intelligent divine force. And so they believed in all kinds of divination. By that we mean occultic practices. They read the entrails of animals to divine the future, things like that. This was common throughout the Roman world. They, they tied these to all kinds of astrological beliefs about the stars, which people still hold today. And that was tied to a doctrine of fate. So it's no surprise that in our culture, as we've abandoned the gospel of Jesus Christ, his kingdom, we're turning back to various occult arts, 
Young people increasingly engaged in involvement in occultism, divination, everything from table raising and Ouija boards and so forth to more complex forms of magic arts. In interfaith and ecumenical circles in the churches, even these kinds of occult practices are being engaged in, including prayers to goddesses in church. Tarnas, the philosopher Richard Tarnas, points out in his book, The Passion of the Western Mind, he says this, listen closely, the existence of the world-governing reason, this is the people Paul was speaking to, has another important consequence for the Stoic. Because all human beings shared in the divine logos, that's this divine essence, all were members of a universal human community. A brotherhood of mankind that constituted the world city or cosmopolis. Each individual was called on to participate actively in the affairs of the world and thereby fulfill his duty to this great community. If you're all part of this one divine thing, then you're part of a cosmopolis. Cosmos, cosmopolis, polis means city, a cosmic city. You're all part of this great community, this great religious community. Are we all worshipping the same God, the divine within, the God within? It's just stoicism. But Obama's just preaching stoicism. It's nothing new, nothing original. Centuries old, millennia old. And the culmination of all of this thought, all of this ancient thought in the Western world, the culmination of it was in a philosopher named Plotinus. And he essentially argued that, the, that the, at the end of all this reasoning and thinking and philosophizing of the Greco-Roman world, especially of the Greek mind, which... They acknowledged when, I mean, I could talk about Pythagoras and his journeys um, eastward where he was learning from the Eastern philosophers and all of that. The idea that sort of the Greek philosopher popped into existence with his scientific mind is a total myth. The Pythagoreans were occultists who worshipped numbers. They sang hymns to the number 10. I kid you not. Well, Plotinus says it ends here. There's only one thing, he says. If the, the one is beyond being, it is also beyond knowledge. That's the divine is what they're talking about. Our awareness of it is not through science or understanding as with other intelligent objects, but by way of a presence superior to knowledge. Tanasa says such awareness is a mystical vision because the one is unknowable, it is ineffable. Plotinus elsewhere says that we cannot even call the one it or say that it is. We have to conclude that there is only a single soul. Thus, at the end of our journey, we reach the one and the only one. Oneism. The philosophers just have a very long, complicated way of saying it. We're all just little bits of emanations of this one universal essence, divine essence. That's what Buddhism says. That's what Hinduism says. That's what, in the end, Greek philosophy says. These are philosophical expressions of the lifeless, dumb idols of Psalm 115. Not Psalm 111, I correct myself, of Psalm 115. 
And when you don't have that transcendent God of the Bible and his kingdom and his word and his truth, you only have the self-consciousness of divine humanity building his great city, his kingdom. And it began with that collective effort there in Genesis to rebel against God. It was a collective effort. And so what you find is that politics and religion are always very closely tied together. The head of state in the ancient world is always a priest, a high priest. In fact, the Roman Caesars were the Pontifex Maximus, the high priest. They connected you with the divine. Man as a God, if man can ascend to divinity, he alone, the ruler, the king, the pharaoh, the Caesar, can connect you with divinity. When you're part of this great state, if you're a Roman citizen. That enables him, of course, to to claim a kind of divine status or sanction for his ideas. And in a very modern, contemporary way, and I'm not picking on Obama because there's men like him all over the world, that's all Obama's doing. You know, come on. All, it's all divine. Worshipping the same God. Come into the polis. Don't be distinct and separate. Don't insist on this uniqueness of Jesus stuff. Join the world soul. What that means is that the end of syncretism, and this is where the rubber hits the road, as we say in England, is always a totalitarian vision of politics, our social life, society. Babylon today, you see, is geographically Iraq. But in Scripture... Babylon is called a great whore. Ancient Babylon and Rome and Tyre and Jerusalem, though, are also called Babylon because Babylon becomes a symbol for any society, any kingdom which dreams of some kind of religious unity apart from the God of Scripture. What Babylon depicts is an ideal, then, of unity, peace, and brotherhood, which mimics, which copies the kingdom of God. And it's called, Babylon is called a whore because there's the, the idea there is of temptation. You're tempted into this order with false religion. Spiritual whoredom always happens when people try and find God or know, good by, or know, or know God by sidestepping the fact of sin of the righteousness of God, of his law, and the necessity of atonement in Jesus Christ at the cross. Thus, all these interfaith, pluralistic, inclusivistic visions that want to accommodate themselves to man's self-justifying psychology absorb themselves into a very broad definition of spirituality. That's simply a realization of the logos, the divine the spirit within. And there, you see, in that world, your problems and my problems are not sin and rebellion against God. They are instead my bad environment, fate, my lack of psychological freedom. 
artificial mores and restraints that society has imposed upon me. If I can just break loose of those, I'll enter into freedom. The one thing that can't be tolerated in this religio-geopolitical alliance is biblical faith. It has no place. This interfaith syncretism has no place. The kingdom of man has no place for the kingdom of God, for biblical Christianity. And so you can see that it's absolutely necessary that everybody becomes a mystic, essentially. Not somebody who believes in the historical death and resurrection and kingdom of, of Jesus and the kingdom of God. No, that's divisive. Which Jesus said it would be. He said, I've not come to bring peace, metaphorically, but a sword to divide mother and daughter, parents and children, with respect to who I am. What you need then instead is this, is, instead of Christianity, is this world religious unity, this mystical spirituality, this tolerance, this relativity that is required for the political order. And the only heresy left is challenging someone's psychological reality. So to challenge somebody's sense of religious consciousness or personal self-consciousness, that's wrong, that's hate, that's bigotry. There is no right and wrong. There is no good and evil. There is no male and female. Rebel man will express the God within through whatever sexuality he desires, whatever spirit he or God or goddess he wants to pray to that he thinks expresses his inner being. As the specialist in pagan thought, Dr. Peter Jones notes, and listen closely, he says, in this great expanse of energy, divinity and truth, no religion can claim exclusive truth. Because Orthodox Christianity commits this unpardonable sin, it is the major obstacle to the religious and social harmony of the planet. Religions must blend into a global unified syncretism. The various creeds are interchangeable and spiritual experiences in communion are in communion with the same occult reality. The Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago, 1993, was a pre-programmed happening of monistic spirituality. Monism, oneism. Conferees were to discover behind their external differences a shared human experience of the divine within. Now, there has always been an alliance in paganism, in humanism, between the priesthood, religion, and the state. Roman syncretism, the Roman world that the gospel was preached into, was made possible by the universal spread of the Greek language. Lots of people speaking Greek. We have today the universal spread of the English language. It wasn't just the spread of the Greek language, but it was the spread of Greco-Roman culture as well. There was the development of a large free trade market in ancient Rome. There was a growing sense of the human race being united, a sense of cultural openness to the spirituality of the East. And then the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome and the vision of Rome as the eternal city under the high priest Caesar. These cults came together. All the cults in Rome, all these different religions came together in this grand synthesis because behind them it was thought there was the same spirit. And this is why Paul found this temple filled with idols in Athens 
because it was believed that that kind of syncretism was the key to world peace, world unity. That's why it's oh so important today for politicians to assure everyone that beheadings and murders and killings and honor killings and rapes and so forth have nothing to do with Islam. No, that's just garden variety terrorism. No, we need all the religions to blend. Dr. Jones has noted that the Emperor Valentinian in AD 384 proposed a a policy of religious toleration. He said this, we gaze at the same stars. The sky belongs to all. This is AD 384. The same universe surrounds us. What difference does it make by whose wisdom someone seeks the truth? We cannot attain to so great a mystery by one road. That could have been written for one of our modern politicians to say at a party conference. Politics and spirituality came together then. They're coming together again now. And in ancient Rome as well, this Pantheistic religion, political power, occult spirituality, and alternative sexuality merged to create what seemed like a colossus that was impregnable to the Christian faith. Can you imagine being a Christian in that world? Seemed impregnable to evangelism. But it wasn't. It's built on a lie. And its devotees, when confronted with the truth, and by the grace of God, recognized it. Dr. Jones is then correct to note that totalitarian political power joined with a syncretistic, all-tolerant world religion to insist on world peace. Isis was welcome. Marduk was welcome. Diana was welcome. But Jesus Christ, oh no, he's not. Why? Because the proclamation of the church has always been Jesus Christ, Jesu Christu, is Lord. Kurios. Jesus Christ is Lord. And oh, they all know what that word meant in the Greco Roman world. That meant he was above Caesar. This was a competing Lord. That's the charge in Acts chapter 7. They are proclaiming another king. Jesus. And that was treasonable. The Hebrew commonwealth stood uh, distinct from the pagan world because they were the one people, the one people that refused to join kingship and priesthood. The only one you find is Melchizedek, and he's an interesting character. He's a unique individual, priest-king at Salem. But you you do not find the kings of Israel acting as priests, and where they try to, they lose their kingdom. Because there is only one priest-king, according to Scripture, only one mediator, only one media between man and God, the man Jesus Christ. Not Caesar. Caesar's not Lord. In Rome, Julius Caesar was the democratic champion 
He was honored by the Greeks of Asia as the offspring of Mars and Venus, the savior of the human race. Octavian claimed to be the son of God. Augustus Caesar at the time of the apostles said this, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved than the name Caesar Augustus. Do you recognize that citation? I hope you do. It's from Acts chapter 4 verse 12 where the apostle Peter gets up and says, for there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved than the name of Jesus. That was a, not just a religious claim, by virtue of the nature of the world, it was also a political claim. It was a rebuttal of Caesar's claim for himself. The Roman world tried to meet the challenge of Christianity, the claims of Christ, the unique, the preaching of the gospel, first with syncretism saying, we'll add Jesus to all our gods. That's good. We'll put him in the temple. The other way they tried to deal with it was extermination. And you all know about the persecution of the Christians in the first century in the amphitheaters, tossing them to the lions burning them. There were major periods of mass persecution of the Christian church. It failed to stamp out Christianity. They tried denaturalization where they were ready to grant freedom of worship so long as the church, the Christian took incense, offered it on the altar, said, Caesar is Lord, and then the state said, we'll give you a license and you can go and worship Jesus. But they refused. They said, Jesus Christ is Lord. They could have freedom of worship, in other words, but not freedom of religion. In our time, the dominant strategy, again, is syncretism and this attempt to destroy the quality of this denaturalization through this interfaith idea. So this original autonomy, this original rebellion... This spirituality eventually becomes political totalitarianism. It creates a rival theological order in rebellion against God. As one theologian has put it, listen to this closely because I'm almost done. The state, has, the state in this view has unlimited jurisdiction because it is that order in which man realizes himself. The order in which man expresses his collective divinity. Vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God in this collective of democratic consensus. That's what democracy means, people, power, vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God. The collective consciousness will determine what's right and wrong, true and false. The result is that where this religion of oneism prevails is it lacks a concept of transcendence, of twoism that is only found in Trinitarian Christianity. You see, it's very simple. If the human person, if man is deified, then all power and authority become imminent. They're not transcendent. All power and authority is an imminent idea. It exists here in the realm of man, human beings. In the West, we've transferred sovereignty from God 
to human beings, and so we've democratized authority as the basis of political life. That is, we think that truth and right is merely the product of the psychology of the people, not what God says they are. Now, you can have a democracy, i.e. representation, you can have voting, as long, legitimately as a Christian, as long as you recognize the authority and sovereignty of God, which, by the way, the preamble to the Canadian Charter is supposed to, does recognize, but we've been told it's a dead letter. Liberty under God is then replaced by the liberty of nature and the development of human rights to express their autonomy from God. In other words, public life is totally separated from God's order, from his theological order, and reduces Christianity to your private psychological belief. And if you think that you can have Christianity, the Christian faith, Jesus, as your private personal faith, your private personal psychological belief, what you have is not Christianity. If it's not something that is lived out in public, that declares the lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, it isn't Christianity, it's something else. God's law is then repealed in terms of men's rights. Because it cannot allow, this kingdom cannot allow the existence of a higher law to be a critique of the state's claim to divinity. If all power, truth, and authority is imminent, not transcendent, then there is no appeal beyond the state. You can't appeal to God, there isn't one. You can't say that's tyranny, that's unjust, I appeal to God and his law. All power and authority is imminent, not transcendent. On that basis, all you have is coercion and power. You don't have truth and right. Whoever's the strongest wins. The revelation is issued by this new God today, and it tells us that the family, the church, they're obstacles, they're a problem. These institutions need to be set aside in favor of an egalitarian, syncretistic world. But the good news is, and I end with this, is that God destroyed the project of Babel, the city of man, the tyranny of man. And we're reminded in Scripture that of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the affirmation of the gospel of throughout the New Testament is that Jesus is Lord, and he has been given a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one and only priest king. It's either that or it's Nimrod. You can choose. It's Nimrod and all his offspring ever since, or it's Jesus Christ. Power and authority and truth are either imminent and they're a product of man's consciousness or they come from God. And we're defined by God and we have true liberty and freedom under God. We're told in Scripture that Jesus Christ comes as the head of a new race to build a new world. He's the second Adam, the last Adam. 
We lost the first one through sin and rebellion, but we're getting it back. And the prophecy of Daniel, when you read the book of Daniel, it tells us that this stone that's uncut by human hands smashes all the, all the empires of men. This great statue that he sees in a vision made of different materials representing the different empires. And this stone grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth because the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ introduced a new world. And you know this credible event on the day of Pentecost, which some of you will be familiar with, I hope, in Acts 2. The remarkable thing about the day of Pentecost, which some people call the birthday of the church, the birthday of this new race, this new people, was that there, people from all over the known world of different languages were in Jerusalem. And they heard the miracle of speaking in tongues of the apostles. And they all heard the gospel in their own language. So you have the confusion of Babel where God scatters the peoples throughout the earth. But then at Pentecost, he sets forth the true source of unity. The person of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Who brings together a church, a people, a kingdom... From every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And brings them together in unity in the covenant of God. Ratified by the blood of Jesus. The agreement that we typify whenever we take communion if we're Christians. That recognize we're part, we're in covenant with God and with each other. He pours out his spirit on this new race, this new family. And the scriptures tell us we can only enter this kingdom by being born again. Jesus says, unless a person is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus then told us that the kingdom of God was near, the true seed of the woman, it's not Zoroaster, it's not Achilles, it's not Thor, it's not Obama, certainly isn't Justin Trudeau. It is Jesus Christ. He is the promised one, the true priest king, the seed of the woman, who has brought about restoration and redemption and reconciliation with God. And he has promised to build his kingdom despite all the lies of the enemy and all the Babel towers that have been built throughout history. And he is now building that from his seat at the right hand of authority and power, that is at the right hand of God, so that we have a message in the gospel that destroys all the false semblances of unity and offers instead the true source of unity, the kingdom of God, the person of Jesus Christ, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which brings us together in true communion. And so we can say with Paul, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And his strength can be shown and manifest in our apparent weakness. The kingdom of God sometimes seems weak and powerless in history, but because Christ is king, it's never at an end. The, of the increase of his government and of his peace, even when it seems to be all behind the scenes, or much of it, there shall be no end. We have 25 minutes left thereabouts for questions. So, guys who are running that. 
Yeah, so if anyone would like to ask any kind of question, it doesn't even have to be about the talk tonight. Uh, Dr. Joe Boot goes around the world, goes to colleges and university campuses uh, and other venues and, and answers questions. So if anyone here has any question, we have two mics here. We'll go around, just raise your hand. Uh, we'll give you the opportunity to ask that question tonight. This lady over here. Okay, so kind of at the beginning when you were reading from Genesis, yeah. um, it said that like God looked at them and said, there's nothing they won't be able to accomplish, so I'll go down and confuse their languages. And for me, like that's always been kind of like a, if somebody came and said, it sounds like God is threatened by this other way of thinking, mm-hmm. what would be kind of an appropriate response to that? Because like, God wouldn't be threatened, but it mm-hmm. certainly sounds that way when... Yeah. The way it's written? That's a good question. Well, of course, um, when we speak of feeling threatened, it's because we feel powerless. So, uh, or we feel that there is um, a significant power or opposition that might threaten our situation. And of course, that's impossible uh, with respect to God. God is never threatened by man uh, because his power is total. And he's the creator, he is the governor, he's the ruler of all things. So, God is not uh, threatened by Babel, but his concern uh, is, is a real one in that there, the Bible does hold out a high view of human beings. That is, that human beings are made in the image of God. If you are a reflection of God an image bearer of God, it's not all that surprising that we would make human beings an object of worship. And don't, let's not pretend we don't do it today. We do. Celebrity culture is a, is, a, is a worship culture. Now, Nebuchadnezzar built his great statue of himself and had people fall down and worship it, but it isn't all that um, uh, strange that goddess worship should stem from... Uh, the worship of Eve, the mother of all living. Man, human beings are an image, are image bearers of God. And so the temptation we have, according to Paul in Romans 1, is to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So it is a human temptation to worship humanity because humanity is the image bearer of God. Now, at Babel, what was happening was that man who is godlike in apprehension, as Shakespeare put it, was coming together in this uh, diabolic unity and was building this kingdom, this civilization, the goal of which was total control and total power, and that God will not surrender. God determines... Uh, the direction of history. His will is done. His kingdom is going to come. So when man says, well, we're going to set up our kingdom, we're going to define reality for ourselves. God inevitably and always blows on that. Scripture says man is a vapor. He's like grass. He's here today. He's gone the next. Death ends all of a man's plans, all of his dreams. He takes nothing, brings nothing into the world. He's going to take nothing out of it. But because man is such an incredible creature, human beings are a marvel because God made us that way. 
Man's dream has been since the beginning that he would be as a god. That he did not like, under, as he, in, in, under the influence of satanic, temp, uh, satanic temptation, this idea of defining things for himself, not having to accept that God is the creator and definer of all things, the temptation to define it for himself, to self-identify, was great. And uh, the realization, he didn't experience self-realization. He experienced alienation, shame, nakedness, exposure. But that desire to be as a god, I mean, it's there throughout the writings of the philosophers. You go look at the existentialist philosophers, what does Sartre say? Man is the desire to be God. Period. Fallen man, that's what he is. He wants to usurp God's prerogatives. He wants to define good and evil for himself. So Babel was this point where man thought collectively, if we come together on our own, we're isolated, we're weak, we're fragmented. If we come together and build this society, and maybe they're thinking even in terms, because this is after the flood, a ziggurat, well, we'll God isn't going to judge us like that again. We're getting to high, we're getting to high ground, our own. And the, the, the pagan myths where creation is out of the chaos of water, is again logical because for their memory, that was the beginning of their memory. The stories, which, by the way, are on every continent of earth among almost all the ancient tribes, is what the anthropologists call a flood myth. It's ubiquitous. So out of the chaos of this water, man thinks he's going to build himself a new world. He's got one language. Now, man is such a marvel that he is capable of wonders. If you'd have told my great-great-great-grandparents that man was going to fly to the moon, they would have thought you were, should be committed to an asylum. And so that dream of being a god, we may look at it in the ancient world and say, well, that's primitive. This idea that you can graduate to the status of a god, and by the way, that's what they thought, that it, by acts of heroism, by... Um, uh, by greatness, you could somehow be, be counted and joined among. You could be counted among the gods. But today we have a philosophy, a, uh, an influential and growing movement. It's called transhumanism or posthumanism, some call it. Where human beings believe today that they are going to merge. They think man's technology is such. He's got this global community. We speak English. This, our, our light speed communications mean that we, we learn and build on the past faster than ever before. And there is a curve of technological development they talk about. And they believe that man will merge with his own technology and become eternal. He will be a god, maybe even download himself into an artificial consciousness, live through eternity through an avatar. Now, these are technocrats. There are colleges and universities set up to talk about this. Ray Kurzweil is one of the leaders of it. He's an he's a incredibly gifted inventor. There are philosophers and thinkers who are committed to this. It's the same idea. Human beings can become divine. For them, God is not born yet. He's on his way. It's on its way. But they talk about the omega point. Now, I could, I could, if I did a talk, a lecture on utopia for you, which is the same concept, I could talk about all of this and trace with you through the 20th century these thinkers and philosophers who talk about the omega point, this moment of um, 
global religious consciousness, where perhaps the internet is thought to be the first step of a totally interactive human brain where there is a global consciousness that everybody's hooked into. For these people, this is not science fiction. Where man will eventually explore the outer reaches of space for all eternity in a, some kind of Borg-esque, if you've seen Star Trek, form. And it's, it's, so it's a technological version of it, but it's exactly the same dream as the ancients. We haven't changed a scrap. So God's concern was man will move very quickly towards, it's taken quite a few thousand years since Babel, since this particular account, to get to where we are today. But man was scattered throughout the world at that point and was scattered then throughout the ancient world. And you see the various uh, language groups and people groups, according to Scripture anyway, um, spread out throughout the earth. So God, in other words, the story, the, the account, this historical account, it's not just a story. It means that God's purposes in history, despite all of man's plots and planning, is not going to be thwarted. We can think we're going to thwart him, but we're not. I know that's a long answer to a short question, but I thought it was a good one. Yes. Absolutely. It was an act of God's kindness and grace. Because man, when he does that, he's always in the process of destroying himself. It's the establishment of tyranny, of total power, and it always means that you've got a ruling elite class at the top who oppress everybody else. That's the way it's always been. Gentleman at the back there. Uh, Dr. Joe Booth, thank you for your lecture. Inspiring, encouraging. How do I put the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope under the lens of your speech tonight? Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, there have been uh, historians who have argued, interestingly enough, that um, the Roman depiction of the Madonna and child, because this uh, Nimrod, this Zoroaster, is often depicted as a child in the lap of the goddess. And there have been some who have argued that Mariology uh, is, a continua- is actually a continuation of this pagan theme. There have been historians, I'm just saying there have been historians who have argued that, uh, that the Roman imagery has been a continuation of that. Now, there may be an element of truth in that because Christianity was preached into the ancient world, which was filled with paganism. So there were syncretistic efforts at that point in history, and certainly um, this idea has raised its head again and again. In fact, one of the most famous Catholic saints, Sir Thomas More, wrote his book, Utopia, in which he dreams of her a communistic utopian order that's really the the product of humanistic man and his um, uh, self-established government. However, I do not go along um, personally with the reformers uh, seeing uh, Rome as Babylon and the great Satan and everything. I understand why in the 16th century they perceived it that way, but I don't believe that is the, I don't believe that is the case. Um, Roman Catholicism, and if there are Roman Catholics here, I say this respectfully. Um, for, for me, Roman Catholicism is a deformation of Christianity. It's still Christianity, 
They're creedally orthodox, but there are accretions, there are additions to biblical faith. The, the reformers, who were Catholic, we're all Catholic, that's the universal church. We're not Roman Catholic because we reject some of the Roman accretions that were added to Scripture. That, that would be the distinct, that's what they were protesting Protestants about. Now, of course, the Protestant church, I would say today, the mainline Protestant church, is more apostate than the Roman Catholic church. More so. I mean, the Roman Catholic magisterium still affirms the deity of Jesus Christ, the reality of God, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the fact that he died and was raised to life, and so forth. Much of mainline Protestantism rejects all of it. So I find myself in public discourse on uh, moral issues, often much closer to the Catholic priest than the United Church minister who's more interested in defending this utopian paganism. So uh, I would say we mustn't bring into the 21st century important battles of the 16th and 17th century over the truth of the gospel because inevitably evangelical faith or reformed faith actually forced a um, a counter-reformation within the Roman church that brought it back closer to scripture and dealt with some of these um, accretions and some of the abuse, the abuses that the people were resisting. And um, I have uh, good friends today who are Roman Catholic. Now, I think their Christianity is a deformation of Christianity, not a reformation of it. I don't think it's uh, as biblical as it needs to be. In fact, there are, and, and there are many people who name the name Roman Catholic who have no idea of the gospel, no idea who Jesus Christ is, have no clue, actually, of Scripture, who don't know God. But even John Calvin said there is a true church amongst them. And I believe that, that there are genuine believers there. So I don't view the Church of Rome as the great whore. No. There's two people here, this gentleman and then this lady. Uh, the question is, how do you know that the Bible is the actual Word of God? That's a great question. There are a number of ways of answering that question, but I'll give you the most important one. Every single one of us accepts authority. All of us. So, I haven't had my DNA checked to see if my parents are my parents, but I do believe that they are. And what I know about literature and history and science is mediated to me through authorities. So some of what I've said tonight, for example, I cited an Egyptologist named David Rahl, who is an authority on ancient Egypt. I'm not an expert in Egyptian hieroglyphics. So I need to rely on authority. Now, if you examine every, any area of your life, you will discover that you rely on an authority. The question is, how do we know whether those authorities are right about anything? In other words, a very simple question comes to us in this way. Could we be wrong about everything that we think we know? Now, the answer, if our answer to that question is yes then we have actually given up knowledge. And we've also given up reason and rationality. If I could be absolutely wrong about everything that I think I know, 
I've surrendered knowledge. Because there is no, let me illustrate it to you this way. I have three children, and when they were growing up, uh, they often would say to me, "Um, why, Dad? So one day I was out watering the plants, and one of my daughters was with me. She was maybe four or five, and she said, what are you doing as I'm watering the plants? Why? Well, they need water. Why is that? Well, plants need water and nutrients that are in the soil, and the plants draw the water up, and it kind of, it's kind of like food, just like you need water and food. Why is that? Uh, well, the sun kind of shines on this. It kind of uses the energy of this. It's getting a bit complicated. Look, because I said so. <laughs> now, who, who is it that can say, because I said so? Because if there is no one who says, because I said so, you have only an infinite regression of ignorance. An infinite regression of ignorance. You would never get to the point, you see, if I prove A from B, you'd say, how do you know B is true, Joe? Well, I say because of C. You know, look at biblical archaeology. Yeah, but how do you know you've interpreted the archaeology correctly to show the Bible is true? Well, because of D, the historical textual evidence that we have. We've got 25,000 manuscripts. Yeah, but how do you know that they were all copied accurately? Well, because of E. Well, yeah, but how do you really know about the resurrection, really? Well, how do you know miracles take place? Well, because of this, there were eyewitnesses. And I could argue and argue and argue endlessly about all the evidences that show the Bible is reliable. But you could always say, yeah, but you can't really be sure about this. Now, that's true of all human knowledge. So... The Bible is the one book which never quotes authorities and never seeks to justify itself based on an appeal to something else. The Bible does not say, does not begin, in the beginning there was motion, or in the beginning there was an uncaused cause. Now, I could offer you a cosmological argument, but those who are sophisticated amongst you might say, isn't that the fallacy of composition? I could offer an ontological argument, and you'd say, well, mm, can you define God into existence like that? I could offer you a design argument to say, look at the human cell. Look at the complexity of that amazing computer, that factory. You say, and, and Surely we recognize that a bridge needs to be designed. Surely the human cell needs to be maybe it just assembled itself by chance. So you could go through all the evidences and say, here's a moment of doubt. Well, you know, the Bible doesn't get off of those arguments. It says, in the beginning, God. And Jesus says, I am the truth, and anybody on the side of truth hears my voice. In other words, the Bible says it is the word of God. Now, you might say, well, that's arguing in a circle, isn't it? The Bible is the word of God because the Bible says it's the word of God. But you argue in a circle too, every single one of you. A logical argument has the conclusion entailed in its first premise. That's why we call it a syllogism, an argument. The conclusion is already entailed in the premise. So everything that you have in your system of thought, in your worldview, everything that you have begins with what you start with. 
So if you say, well, I start with myself and the reach of my mind, let me tell you what philosophy has concluded about that. All you have at the end of all your reasoning then is your mind. We call that solipsism, which is the mind alone. You could not prove to me right now, I can't prove to you that I'm not an android or you're all not figments of my imagination or that the world is even here. That this isn't a dream. When you actually get down to the root questions, when people say, prove it, you can't even prove that I exist. You can't prove that you exist in terms of direct proof. The only proof of anything, and this is the final proof of Christianity, is indirect. And that is that there is only the possibility of knowledge of any kind if I begin with God and the fact that he has spoken. The one who says, because I said so. That is a transcendental argument. That is to say, there is no intelligibility to your experience or mine. You cannot account even for counting. You cannot account for morality. You cannot account for reason. You cannot account for truth. You cannot account for any of those things. Oh, don't, don't get me wrong. You might be moral. You might think you have truths. But you cannot account for them unless God is and he has spoken. That is the foundation of the reason in the end why the Bible is the word of God. Because unless this is the word of God... There is no proof of anything. The proof of Christianity is that without it, there is no proof of anything. You, cannot, you can talk rationally. You can talk about rational arguments and say, Joe, give me a reason. But you can't justify the existence of reason. You say, Joe, I'll justify a reason for you and give me a reasoned argument. But that's a circular argument, is it not? I will give you a, I will reason to prove to you that my reasoning is valid. That's just a circle. The only proof of reason has to be a transcendent justification of reason, that we are made in the image of God, and he has made this world, and the categories of our thought, of reason, of logic, of language, and so forth, are the fact that they reflect the image of God. Truth is what God says it is, period. Otherwise, we are in an endless sea of pure possibility where no truth is ever knowable. You are surrounded by a total sea of brute facts that is uncreated, uninterpreted, unrelatable factuality. So philosophers can talk about reason and morality as much as they want, but in the end, they can't account for the fact that they can count from one to ten. There is no truth unless God is and he has spoken. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't evidences. In light of what I've said about who God is and the fact that we can look at history and we can look at the pottery of the ancient world and draw conclusions from it, and we can look at texts from the ancient world and draw conclusions from it, that's all fine. And I could talk about all of those things, but in the end, the final proof is this. Jesus Christ said, I am the truth. That this is the word of God that God has spoken. God is and he's spoken. And isn't it a fascinating fact 
that not a single author in here ever argues from some aspect of experience to the idea of God. That would be the most illogical way of arguing because the only kind of word that this God could speak is a totally infallible and true word. That's that's my proof of the infallibility of Scripture. Yes, I can give all kinds of evidences of the reliability of the Bible, but its infallibility and total authority is based on this, that the triune God who created, sustains, and governs all things, no new information can come to him to change his mind. That's why the Bible says God is not a man that he should lie. The only kind of word that this being can know, he's not surrounded by pure possibility. He knows the potentiality of all things. He governs all things. The only type of word he can speak is a totally true word. A totally infallible one. Otherwise, he's not the God of Scripture. So if you want to retain any... Now, some might say at the end of all of that, well... That indirect argument for God, well, I'll just give up reason and rationality and everything else then. I actually did this with a, with a, a philosophy student at Oxford some years ago. I was speaking at the uh, University of um, uh, Oxford's uh, City Mission, and there were four or 500 Oxford students out there. I was preaching the gospel of Christ. I was talking about some of these things, and a, 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 an Oxford student came to me at the end, a philosophy major. He was in his third or fourth year, and we started talking about what I've just said to you. And it took about 10 minutes for me to walk him through to the point where he said, you're right, the only solution is silence. Because Nietzsche said, no God, no grammar. What's language? What is word? If my words don't correspond to God's word, which is truth, then This whole evening is just meaningless noise. You you might as well have sat here listening to a radio tuned between two or three different stations. How is it that truth can exist in my mind and then through noises exist at the same time in yours? You see, if truth is not something that's above the mind, how could we both experience or know the same fact or know the same reality at one and the same time? It's not a physical thing. It's not a material thing. It's an immaterial thing, like laws of thought. You don't grab the truth and hold it and just, oh, I dropped the truth, let me pick it up. So the very idea of the use of language... Christ is the word of God. The logos is the word in the Greek. He is the true word. Now, unless there is a logos to which my words correspond, then all language is meaningless noise, and some of the philosophers have come to that conclusion. We have these little language huddles where we have meanings, but there is no meaning. There's no transcendent meaning. So when he said the answer is silence, he actually unwittingly offered the answer of the truly consistent Buddhist philosopher who sits in a cave on his own and says nothing. 
Because if all is one, if all there is is oneism, and we are all an aspect of the one, the blank, remember Plotinus, his blank oneness, his blank nothingness. In Nirvana or in Brahman, Brahman Atman, there is no self, there is no you, there is no personality, there is just the nothingness. There is just pure being. As soon as you speak and you invoke laws of language and laws of thought, you're dividing up things. You're saying reality is rational, reasonable. That there is truth. There is description. There's predication. So the answer is you either shut up and say nothing to me or God is. In fact, the very fact that you can ask the question proves there is a God. We'll leave it there for tonight. Awesome. Can we give Joe Boot, uh, Dr. Joe Boot a big hand? Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.